time for Coffee with the Chicken Ladies, a podcast for people who love chickens. Hey, everybody, and welcome. It's Chrissy and Holly from Coffee with the Chicken Ladies. We're here, and this is episode 114 of our podcast, where we talk about everything chicken, family, fun, and more chickens. More chickens. We drink a ton of coffee. I'm talking a ton. But most importantly, we hug chickens every day. And we kiss them too. Don't forget, we brew coffee from a little coffee house here in Bel Air, Maryland. Holly Ann, what kind of coffee are we brewing today? Caramel. It's one of your faves. Yes, it is. Okay, so are you ready to sip some coffee and chat? I am. But first, a word from our sponsor. We have some exciting news to share from our sponsor, Grubbly Farms. This month, you can receive 30% off if you're a first-time buyer. I'm a long-time subscriber, and my flock love the healthy, nutritious treats. Orders $40 and more ship-free. If you haven't heard, Grubbly's has a fantastic layer pellet and crumble feed. It's packed with plant and insect protein. It's perfect for those picky chickens and ducks. This offer does not apply to subscriptions and cannot be combined with any other discounts. It's a great time to try Grubbly Farms if you haven't yet. Use the code CWTCL30 for 30% off your first purchase. Try it today. Okay, so how are you doing? I'm all right. How about you? Cold. Yeah, it's chilly today. Yeah. It's so windy. When you go upstairs out of our studio, oh, and surprise, we're back in the studio. Yay. Yay. We're sitting at the same table after almost a month of not. It's been a while. It's been crazy. We've been so sick. I finally have my voice back. I still have a little nagging cough here and there, but I can speak. So yes. I'm happy. Yes. And it's been rainy and miserable and just horrible weather, just getting me down. I need sun. Oh, well, plan your garden. I know. I'm going to plan lots of herbs and everything else, but mm-hmm. I need some sunlight. Come on. <laughs> I ordered a new spinning wheel. Oh, you did? You went ahead and ordered it? I did. Because I've been spinning on the same wheel for 20 years. That's gar- an artifact. It is an artifact. <laughs> Seriously. I'm just joking. I'm an artifact and it's an artifact. We belong in a museum together. <laughs> Come see this exhibit of Holly Ann spinning. But no, not that. I mean, I love that wheel, but she can't keep up with me anymore. <laughs> so I ordered a new one, and the new one has a lot of the parts 3D printed. I mean, it's wooden. Yeah. But a lot of the parts are 3D printed, so it's lighter to ship. It's a lighter wheel, and it costs less. So you pulled the trigger on that. You just went ahead and ordered it. I did. Because we were talking about that a few days ago. Yeah, I couldn't make up my mind what I wanted to do. And I don't know, Pete and I talked it through, and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one. Here's what I love about this wheel. It's customizable. You get to paint and finish it yourself. Nice. So the big question here is, will there be any chickens on the wheel? There are a lot of surfaces to paint and customize. Stencils or freehand? I don't know that I'm talented enough to do a chicken freehand. I'll come over and do a chicken freehand. Oh my God, <laughs> Look no. at our board. Yes, I see it. No. So our whiteboard, I drew a nice chicken in our office. I was looking at stencils on Etsy yesterday for chickens, sheep, and llamas. Nice. So yeah. Anyway, that's my exciting news. Back to your regularly scheduled chicken podcast. (laughs) We're back to it. If you're listening to our show and you're loving it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a written review. You wouldn't believe it. It does amazing things for the growth of our show. And while you're there, hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. And it's another great way you can help us. You can tell a chicken-loving friend or three about the podcast. Or 10. You can share your favorite episodes on social media. You can head over to Etsy, check out our t-shirts and mugs. You can become a patron of the show, patreon.com slash coffee with the chicken ladies. Check out our levels of membership there. And the other thing you can do to help support the show is visit our show notes, use our affiliate links and discount codes, and buy products from our sponsors. Yay! Hey, Chris. Yeah? Do you like subscription boxes? Does it have anything to do with chickens? Of course. Then, yeah. 
Let me take a minute to tell you about the Chicken Love Box. If you love goodies for your chickens and you, you need to go to chickenlove.com. I love the Mega Box. Tons of useful products for my flock and a chicken tea for me. You can't go wrong with a chicken tea. They are so cute and so soft. In the November box, I absolutely love that glass rooster cutting board and the woven chicken tea towel. I adore those Santa chicken hats and scarves, and I cannot wait to hang those chicken ornaments up on my chicken tree. Boxes start at $39 a month. They ship immediately after your order, and shipping is always free. Such a great deal. Don't wait. Get off the nest and click already. Use the code CWTCL50 for 50% off your first box of a three-month subscription or more. That's chickenlove.com. That's chickenluv.com. Get your subscription today. Have you heard of Strong Animals Chicken Essentials? They make natural supplements for your flock. Strong Animals has used plant-based products and natural approaches to promote the health and vitality of backyard flocks. Their products contain organic essential oils, prebiotics, and other natural ingredients to support the immune system and digestive health. Give your chicks and chickens what they need to thrive with Strong Animals health products. Visit GetStrongAnimals.com today. The Breed Spotlight is brought to you by Murray McMurray Hatchery, defining quality for generations. For over a century, Murray McMurray Hatchery has remained a trusted family-owned business, working tirelessly to ensure our poultry meet the highest standards. Whether you are an experienced enthusiast or just embarking on the journey, look to McMurray Hatchery for guaranteed quality rare and heritage breeds, low minimums, and all the supplies you need to raise your flock. Request a free catalog today. Da, 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 ding, ding, ding. Time for Breed Spotlight, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was totally extemporaneous. I looked at your face and I was like, you had no idea what you were going to do. It was stream of consciousness. It was just coming out like whatever hit me at that second was coming out. It's time for this week's Breed Spotlight and we are doing the Silky 2.0. The silky, also called the silk fowl, or the Chinese silk chicken, is a bantam chicken that originated in Asia. Are all of them bantams? No, we'll talk about that in a minute. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're preempting everything. I, well, because in my mind, I did not realize that. Here, you never see them other than bantams in the U.S. If you haven't seen the silky, look one up right now. I can't believe anybody hasn't seen the silky, but, but do if you have a favor. Look it up, yes. Yeah. So they have these poofy, silky feathers. And their feathers, if you compare them with other chicken feathers, they're missing the barbacils. And the barbacils are the little hooks that keep all the feather bits together. And they make a natural umbrella across your chicken. So any kind of moisture is not going to go through feathers. Right, exactly. Except for the silky, they will. Right, because the silkies don't have the barbacils. It gives them the appearance of being covered in like down feathers. I mean, their feathers are so fine and just soft that you can really see that that's missing the barbasols. They'll get drenched Right, that means they are not weatherproof, and it also means they can't fly. I'm going to say this just to put it out there. They're not a beginner chicken. I mean, there are reasons why that we'll get into. Temperament-wise, yes. A lot of other things, not so much. Nope. So while silkies are bantams in the U.S., as we already established, we've seen some references to standard-sized silkies in some other countries in Europe. But even with these standard-sized silkies, it looks like they'll top out at, say, three or four pounds, Which depending on sex. on the brink of bantam, anyway. Right, that's still a very, very small-body chicken. Now, silkies also carry the gene for fibromelanosis. Which means their entire body, including skin and connective tissue, is black, 
Yes. Scientists believe that this genetic mutation originated in chickens native to China. There are some other Chinese breeds that share this characteristic. Exactly. And we see it in breeds like the I am Samani, the mm-hmm. Smart Hona, the Vietnamese Hmong chicken. They all share that same trait. So if they get wet, you would notice very quickly that their skin and everything is black. Right. Under. Now, silkies are another breed of chicken that are at least a couple of thousand years old. Oh, yeah. They've been known outside of Asia since at least the 13th century, probably longer. Marco Polo wrote about a silky or a furry chicken that he saw in China. And a few of the earliest naturalists mentioned a woolly hen. They kind of look like that. Yeah, I can see that, what woolly hen. So we don't know at what point the silkies started showing up in Europe and the UK, nor have I found any information at all on exactly when they arrived in the US. It's like, poof, they're here. We know they were around by the 1870s because they're in the standard of perfection. Right. My best guess is that traders brought them out of Asia and sold them at port cities in the Western world. And they would have been a real novelty, especially if they showed up during hen fever. Especially because they have a different look than most any other chicken you're going to see. Completely unique animal. Completely unique. So everything about them, there's nothing really standard. So you look at them and you're just like, wow, they're so unique. There's nothing like them. I haven't seen them documented in hen fever, so they might have come in right behind it. But people were already primed for keeping unusual breed pet chickens. So you think about the cochin coming from China, Mm -hmm. which is also another fairly unique type of chicken. Absolutely. And then you have the silky. Mm -hmm. You're like, wow. Yeah. As I do, I checked in with all of the various poultry historians, and they each had their own opinion of the silky. If there's one thing you can say about these men, the poultry historians, and that is they all had their own opinions. Especially Lewis Wright. So Edmund Dixon proclaimed them worthless as livestock. But what I thought was interesting about Edmund Dixon is that he mentions a type of silky called the Nankin silky fowl that looked like a white silky, but had a red comb and white skin and bones. Strange. Right? So Lewis Wright comes to the rescue and he explains that the silkies were crossed with other bantam breeds to make them smaller. So I'm guessing that what Edmund Dixon calls a silky Nankin is simply a Nankin silky cross. Queen Victoria kept some of the familiar black bone silky fell in her menagerie. So that's the silky of today or approaching the silky of today. Tegenmeyer admired their gentleness and he declared them well-suited for rearing pheasants and partridges. He also mentioned that they need protection from the weather. I like that he was pointing out that they are delicate, that they can't stay out. out But he also did say like, hey, they're good for sitting on your pheasants, Mm -hmm. eggs and everything else. Tegetmeyer also mentioned that some people had successfully crossed them with cochins and created a silked cochin. Hmm. That cross must not have flourished because we've not seen it. I mean, when that comes to my mind, that's all I can say is, hmm. And then Lewis Wright, he commented that 100 years ago, silkies were pretty good layers. He thought they should have been crossed with Pekins to create the master breed of broody hen. To me, that sounds like a nightmare, man. Well. I mean, you're going to talk about a hen broody, 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 that's never going to lay an egg. I mean, I guess a lot of the chicken hobbyists at that point, they didn't have incubators. They needed a pretty continual supply of broody hens if they were breeding heavily. What I gathered from all of these people is that silky crosses were not unusual. I think, honestly, what they were trying to do was breed some hardiness into this delicate chicken. Probably. Anybody at that point in time that's keeping chickens, they're not going to have the heat panels that we have today and all those modern technologies. If they get wet or wet and cold, it's not good news. No. And we know that they're susceptible to viruses and things like that. The last cross I found that I thought was interesting is I found the 1914 publication with a reference to a silky langshin. Now, that's just pure craziness right there. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge bird. Yeah. That's weird. We're we're just going to move along from that one. Yeah. 
So there is an absolute ton written about silkies. A boatload. I mean, tons. They show up in texts on genetics. They show up in anthropology textbooks. They show up in books on Eastern medicine, cookbooks, children's books, books on showing chickens, general chicken keeping books, photography books, and books devoted exclusively to the silky breed. I really believe they're one of the most worldwide well-loved chickens. I would agree with that. I just feel like people need to be next level educated on taking care of these chickens. And starting out first time with chickens, I don't believe anyone should get sulkies until they know what they're dealing with. I mean, unless they're animal savvy and they're prepared for things like the special care that a sulky needs. Or, you know, heavily researched. I mean, it's not a chicken that you can just go to your farm supply store and get one and then make a little coop and put them out in the backyard. No, no, not really. They need special care. For a lot of different reasons. Yeah. So this we can agree with. They are ridiculously adorable. Yeah. They're beyond cute. And you know what? We talk all the time about their blue earlobes, which they're the Tiffany pearls from the Tiffany company. They're that color. You want to snuggle them 100% of the time. And here's the thing. They will accept the snuggle 100% of the time because that's their personality. They're very placid. Yeah. So they have a walnut comb. Which is different. Yeah, it is. It really does look like a walnut. It's a very apt name. Oh my God, that's ridiculous. <laughs> just as we're talking, I enlarged the picture on this my iPad. photo of a silky. She's just a white flaw. <laughs> so they have the walnut comb. They have five toes, feathered legs and feet. And as we said earlier, they're completely black down to their skin and bones. Now their visible skin is a purplish color and it's sometimes referred to as mulberry. Yeah. I could see that mulberry. Yeah. Silkies are crested. Large crested. Yes. You can't poop, see their eyes. Right. Many, if not all, silkies have beards. Here's the thing I see a lot. People will trim up the silkies so that they can see. Yes. Or use a little tiny hair thing to pull up the feathers away. And because those feathers don't have those barbersols, you can do that. Right. Well, actually, I have a silky Swedish flower cross that was given to me. I just take a small pair of scissors. I have Pete hold her securely, and I just trim the feathers back. Yeah, so that they can she, see. Yeah, she'll get feather blind, and that's not a good thing for a chicken. No, not at all. And that's especially important if you have them out with other chickens or if you have them out foraging a bit. They've got to be able to see where they're going. Well, they're not predator savvy. Not at all. Not at all. And we don't think any chicken is really predator savvy. If, if something wants to get your chicken while it's free-ranging, unsupervised, it's going to get your chicken. Usually. But this chicken especially, with the heavy feathers and the crest, and then just their daintiness, definitely I mean, not if they've been essentially savvy. bred as pets. They're like the quintessential pet chicken. They really are. I mean, if they've been bred there for a couple thousand years, they just- They're companion chickens. Yeah, they don't need to bother with stuff that other chickens have to Honestly, do. Honestly, I think this is one of the chickens that, in my mind, should be a house chicken. We've had this conversation multiple times. I mean, you can definitely keep them outside. You can, but you have to have really a lot of provisions. You do, you do. One of the other things about them is how small they are under all that fluff. Right. So the hens are usually about... Two pounds. Roos are about two and a half. I mean, they're phantom size. They're very small. So that's the other thing. If you're introducing them into a normal size flock, keep in mind, they're tiny. Maybe if you start the flock all together, yeah. that would be okay. Yeah. But if you have a normal size flock and then you're bringing this dainty bird in that can't see well, that's only two, two and a half pounds, you could have some trouble. So Silkies appeared in the first printing of the American Poultry Association Standard of Perfection in 1874. They appeared as bearded white and non-bearded white. We'll see that pattern as we go through the silky colors. Bearded and non-bearded are in two separate classes, as they should be, really. Yeah. So in 1965, bearded and non-bearded black were added. 
And then we have to go all the way to 1996 for new colors. Okay, so let's name these new colors. We have blue. Buff. Gray. Partridge. And finally, in 2000, the bearded splash was added, which is a heavy favorite. Oh, yeah, the splashes are beautiful. I mean, you're going to pay some money for the splashes. Yes, you really are. And the funny thing there is they're a byproduct of the blue genetics. Yeah. So I'm glad they're recognized and that people use them for showing. They are very pretty. They're just the quintessential sit on your sofa and watch TV. Carla, we're talking to you because Carla (laughs) is one of the best silky mommies we've ever met. Yes, we love Carla. Carla's one of our patrons. And Carla sent us a Christmas card with all four of the girls on there. (laughs) I love it. She watches TV with her silkies. I feel like this is how these birds need to live. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's go into hens laying. They lay about three small white or cream eggs per week. And I was wondering if all the poultry historians from the 19th century, did they consider three eggs a week really good or did silkies lay more then? I don't know. I'm thinking three eggs, they probably said no good. Like they were probably like, we need like a five egg layer. A capital layer. Yeah. But the thing is, then they're worth their weight in gold and broodiness. Absolutely. There's a saying that says a silky will sit on a rock and be (laughs) broody. So they're known to go broody so quickly. Very easily. Very easily. Mm -hmm. If you have a silky or two and it's a small family, they're going to feed you an eggs for three a week. Now, my honeysuckle, who is my silky cross, she'll pump out three to four eggs a week and she is going on six. Nice. So I don't know where that comes from. She's such an amazing layer. She's only gone broody once since I've had her. We could put this out to the listeners. If you have silkies, let us know how many eggs you get per week. We would love to know. For what we're reading, it's saying about three a week, which, you know, three a week and you have multiple, that's going to feed your family all you need. But the fact is, they're known as a companion bird. Right, exactly. You know, so the Uh, eggs are just an extra thing. I was just thinking about that. Honeysuckle is such a good, reliable layer, but she's Swedish flower and silky. She's a mix. Yeah. We have to stress this a lot. Wind and cold and wet weather, they are enemies to the silky. Silkies don't have the barbasols to give them that natural umbrella, and they can freeze very easily. I mean, they can tolerate some cold, dry weather as long as it isn't frigid. If you're getting into the 20s, really, you're getting cold. If you're getting into the teens, that's a no. Here's the thing. Wetting this bird is a big no-no unless you're going to give them a bath and dry them with a dryer directly after. A wet silky in cold wind is a recipe for hypothermia. If you do a bath, they are going to need to be blow dried. Yeah. Now, in very cold climates or during cold snaps, they may need to be moved to a sheltered area and or given supplemental heat. And of course, we recommend radiant heat panels. I honestly believe for the silky, it's a must. There might be some silkies out there that survive rough conditions, but I bet you my last dollar that they're not going to have a long lifespan. Two, two and a half pounds, first of all. Right. There's not a lot of body weight to no. keep them warm. And then their feathering is different. It's not as protective as normal chicken feathering. Right. So they can't puff their feathers up to trap that heat down in there. So they're definitely going to need supplemental heat. Yeah, absolutely. This is one of the provisions. If you're going to have silkies in your regular yard, you may have to have a pop-up. Right. And a panel heater to bring into a garage or a basement Mm -hmm. or a laundry room when it's cold. Right. Now, as we've said all along, they make fantastic pets. They have this gentle nature and they're like a fluffy cloud. And I think that often leads them to house chicken status. Just their cuteness. Their cuteness and wanting to snuggle and just wanting to be around people. Everybody wants to be around them. They're just like one of the chickens that I could see being a house chicken just so easily. Oh, yeah. They're also very good show birds, though if you're showing silkies, there's probably a lot of competition. 
Oh, yes. They're excellent broody hens, as we've said. Now, we don't consider them an ideal homestead breed, though they will help out in the garden like any other chicken. They're more of a companion chicken. We're going to shoot it to you straight. If we say that this bird was a great homestead bird, we're going to put that out there. This is one that both of us agree <laughs> is not <laughs> is not a good ideal going to work the farm on the homestead. This is a companion chicken, a it's purse chicken. Absolutely a purse chicken. There's no doubt about it. You have to be able to do the research and make the provisions so that this breed will have a long and healthy life. Right. If not, they may not live as long exactly. for you. Right. So where do we get silkies? Well, first of all, there are lots and lots of breeders out and there. And lots. We would not be doing our jobs if we didn't say that silkies can have delicate health and they are predisposed to certain ailments, including Merrick's disease. Also including upper respiratory problems. Yeah. So if at all possible, make sure your chicks are vaccinated. And Murray McMurray Hatchery does offer vaccines for their silky chicks. They have unsexed silkies because they're bantams. Right. Available in black, blue, buff, and white. So here's our number one takeaway. This chicken has to be vaccinated against Merrick's. It's not a risk worth taking for this particular chicken and for the rest of your flock. Exactly. If you're going to go anywhere, find a breeder that vaccinates or go to McMurray Hatchery. You know they're completely reputable and you can get the vaccines right well, actually, there. You can get Merrick's and coccidiosis. At I would McMurray, do any vaccine offered on a silky. There's also the American Silky Bantam Club as well. They have a website and a Facebook page and lots of good information there. I, I always forget the Silky is a Bantam. I've always mentally had them in their own category because they're so unique. Me too. Like I don't even have them in a regular or Bantam category. Yeah. It's just Silky standalone. Right. If you have pictures of you <laughs> yes. and your Silkies, we want to see them. Pour those Silky pictures in. I want to flood our storyboards with Silkies this week. Send them to us over on Instagram. We would love it. If you're looking for a chicken coop that's produced in a planet-friendly, sustainable way, try Nestera. Each coop is made from highly durable, 100% recycled plastic that keeps the equivalent of up to 2,000 shampoo bottles out of a landfill. Their clean, modern design will fit into any garden or run area and comes with an industry-beating 25-year warranty and a range of handy accessories. Simple to put together, so quick and easy to clean, and most importantly, red mite resistant. Your chickens will love it. Quick shipping from Amazon.com or Nestera.us. Use our code CWTCLP10 for 10% off. Check them out today. Roosties proudly sponsors Coffee with the Chicken Ladies. If you're raising chicks or keeping chickens, take a look at Roosties store on Amazon.com. We've personally tested their products and we're huge fans. They have their famous nesting pads, those fantastic chick water and feeder kits, do-it-yourself port feeder kits, water or nipple and water or cup kits. And you don't even need to drive to the stores. They're all available for prime delivery on Amazon.com. Visit Amazon.com and check out the Roosties range or follow the link in our show notes. Okay, so let's move on to main topic. Yeah. Yeah. We are super excited to welcome this week's guest. Sally Colfard is an international best-selling author. She's written more than 25 books. And she's here to talk with us this week about her newest book, Foul Play, A History of the Chicken from Dinosaur to Dinner Plate. She's a columnist for UK Country Living Magazine and really an all-around amazing chicken lady. Sally, welcome to the show. Welcome. How are you doing? Thank you very much. I've never been described as a chicken lady before, but I shall wear that title with great pride. Definitely. So you're probably going to be pretty familiar to all of our UK listeners. 
So for everyone in the U.S. and around the world who might not know your name, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Of course. So I'm a writer primarily, but I also run a small holding here in North Yorkshire, which is a rural county in in England. And it's very small scale, but I keep rare breed sheep, lots of chickens, geese, and along with that, my unruly family as well. We all share this space and it's glorious. It's just, you know, very gentle life living in the countryside. Suits me down to the ground. You love it. I do. They give you so much happiness. So how can you not love it, right? That's so true. And, you know, I think it's been a bit of a journey to get to this point because I spent a lot of my early working life in London, working in TV and doing quite a sort of stressful job, but it was quite exciting. But I realized that something was missing. And and for me, kind of coming back to the countryside and living a much kind of calmer, gentler life where I'm in touch with animals and nature, it just, it's been transformative. So I can heartily recommend it for anyone who's very stressed at the moment. For sure. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. We know that you have lovely Soe sheep, another rare breed that's on the conservation priority list here in the U.S. But what kind of chickens and poultry do you keep? What breeds? So thinking about this, I made a little list of what's currently in my coop at the moment, because over the years, I've had lots of different breeds, some kind of your absolute bog standard hybrids that I've kept for just being kind of really reliable laying chickens. But as time gone on, I've realized that certain kind of chicken breeds have different personalities. And so I've become more drawn to some of the Bantam breeds. I've got three different types of silkies. I've got lavenders. One, a little variety called Milfleurs. I've got black mottled silkies. I've got a little wine dot, a little blue laced one who's very cute. I've got a couple of Polish, a couple of Pekins. I've got a wonderful cockerel called Andy, who's a light Sussex. He's absolutely magnificent and very tame. I've got cream leg bars for laying blue eggs, a big fat marron for brown eggs, and a lovely Wellsummer as well. It's a real mixture in there. That's a nice group of chickens. A lot of my type of chickens in there. I'm going to have to come over and visit you and visit all these beautiful chickens that oh, you have. Can I give them a cuddle? They're very cuddly. <laughs> I'm impressed. You have a wine dot. That's American bred chicken. And they're beautiful. They're so beautiful. I didn't really know much about them, but I have a, a friend who runs a business called Chickens to Your Dog, which does rare breed chickens. We know She's you're a mutual friend of ours. <laughs> we know well. Oh my God, she's amazing. Debbie's been on the show a few times. <laughs> she gets everywhere, that girl. She gave me as a present this little blue list wander, and it's so pretty. The feathers are exquisite, and she's just so calm and gets along with the other chickens and things. So, so yeah, she's one of my favorites. What's her name? Do you know what? She hasn't actually got a name. I keep veering from naming chickens and not naming chickens. Because there seems to be a curse on our farm that as soon as you name anything, it gets eaten. Oh, no. Oh, no. Maybe we should name her Libby because Libby gave her to you. That would be so cute. That's such an amazing idea. In that case, (laughs) you're on. But um, I've got some chickens that are named after kind of feminist icons. And then the kids named some of the chickens after kind of pop stars. You've got a strange kind of mixture of things going on in there. But uh, yeah, I always feel like if you get really attached to a chicken, usually that kind of singles it out for being eaten by a fox. So... Like, oh no, I better not name it just in case. <laughs> I'm very curious about your feminist names. Do you have an Emmeline Pankhurst by chance? I don't, but I've got a Mary Beard. Do you know Mary Beard? Yes. I've got a Joan of Arc. 
I've got a Marie Curie. I like Perfect. them. Those are great. It's so funny we can both relate to you because Holly Ann names according to historical women. And I have two daughters. So my oldest hen that I have right now, who's eight, her name is Bubbles. And she was <laughs> named when my daughter was five. You have the mixture of the kids are like, let's name her Bubbles. Okay. And it's six. <laughs> yeah. So it's so funny. It's fun. And that's one of my favorite parts around chick time and getting the chicks. My girls and I sit down. And we have to brainstorm names. It's the fun part of it. Oh, it's so good. I know. Well, I, I named our cockerel after my dad because my dad's such a nice chap and a real kind of gentleman. And Andy, because we raised him by hand, he's ever so gentle. But he's a real kind of defender of the flock as well. So I thought, I'm going to name him after my father in honor of his great personality. That's nice. I really and like that. Light Sussex are so gorgeous too. Oh, he's so handsome. I think he knows he's really handsome, though, as well, because he's just got a strut <laughs> that kind of says, I've got it. But he comes to the window most mornings just for a little kind of a tickle and a little piece of bread, and he's gorgeous. Oh, wonderful. My Gertie is a well summer, so you struck me with well summer also, and she has half my heart. They're just amazingly intelligent chickens that breed, especially. They're so intelligent. Yeah, yeah. Have you found any difference in kind of hybrids with sort of rare breeds in terms of kind of temperament? They're usually bred to be more friendly. Yeah. I mean, honestly, neither one of us keep hybrids. And the reason why, well, we don't have anything here like the British Hen Welfare Trust. Right. But the reason neither one of us keep hybrids, or two reasons, actually. The first is because they're more subject to things like reproductive cancer than the heritage breeds. Yeah. And the other answer is because the hybrids tend to be so sweet and friendly, we would get our hearts broken in two or three years because they don't live as long. Their life expectancy is so much shorter Mm -hmm. because of the genetic breeding that goes on to get them to that certain point. And like Holly Ann said, they're bred to lay eggs a ton. Yeah. Yeah. I found the Rhode Island kind of hybrids and stuff. They're so friendly, like you say, and so fearless. And I don't mean fearless as in brave. I mean fearless as in completely without that kind of natural fear response that I think some of the rare breeds have. So it doesn't make, it makes them not massively sensible. In the days before avian flu and stuff, where the chickens have had to be kept in. We've had hybrids kind of get into cars and get into vans, you know, delivery vans and end up going, you know, off the farm or, you know, hiding in cupboards and all that kind of stuff. They're just not the brightest of the breeds, I think, maybe. Very sweet. Not as smart. Yeah. Yeah. It's part of our mission to kind of reach out to everyone and say, get heritage breeds and help keep them flowing and not going into extinction where some of them are in trouble. Absolutely. The genetic diversity argument is so important, especially as kind of food security. I don't think people realize how important it is to keep these rare breeds going. Right. If everybody just keeps getting hybrids, the rare breeds will be gone. And then what are you going to make your hybrids from? Yeah, yeah. Let's go on to this. You've just published your 29th book. We love it. Your books are amazing. So this is your 29th book. So what prompted you to dive into the history of chickens? A lot of our podcast, it's built on the history of chickens. So that's why it really struck us. So I've been thinking about it for a while because as time goes on and I get more engaged with food welfare issues and animal welfare issues, I've been getting crosser and crosser about things to do with hen welfare and chicken welfare and all that kind of stuff. I suppose I realized that there was a really fascinating story to be told when I read in a British newspaper, it must have been quite a long time ago now, about, I think it was an American university, who'd done this experiment with chickens to try and recreate the walk of the Tyrannosaurus rex. And they basically strapped kind of toilet plungers to the bottom of chicks. 
and then kind of monitored how the walk of a chicken changed with effectively a weighty tail behind it. And the result of the kind of science was that the chicken's gait changed from that kind of tiptoe stepping that chickens right. do for kind of like cowboy swagger. And it's fascinating because it's a fascinating scientific experiment, but it's also I'm deeply uncomfortable about animal experiments as well in lots yes. of ways. Us too, completely. But the really interesting thing was, why on earth did they choose a chicken as the test subject? How did they know that the chicken was going to be a good test subject for how dinosaurs walked? And at that point, I thought, okay, this is the real story. And as I did kind of more research, I realized that there's a lot of science that links the evolution of dinosaurs and theropods in particular, which are the group of dinosaurs that velociraptors and T-Rexes are involved with, sorry, a part of, and the evolution of the chicken. And this just blew my mind to thought, how many people know that scratching around in their backyard is basically the closest living relative to the T-Rex? When you start to actually see how chickens walk and, and you start to think, like, this makes sense to me. Their movements, their scales on their, you know, everything just kind of makes sense. And so that was the kind of starting point, really. And then I thought, well, OK, so we've got the beginning of the journey. How do we go from this point this incredible survivor of the, you know, the asteroid that destroyed pretty much three quarters of our life on Earth and was an ancestor of the dinosaurs. How have we got from that to the point where you can buy a bucket of chicken wings for two pounds? And these animals aren't even viewed as animals. They're not sentient creatures. They're not animals to be valued. They're just a commodity. That's why I called the book Foul Play, because it feels like a terrible trick that we've played on a creature. But it's also a metaphor for how I feel we treat nature in general, that it's something to be commoditized, it's something to be exploited. And ultimately, as I talk about at the end of the book, nature is fighting back in ways that are kind of unexpected. You know, we start to get things like bird flu, which are coming out of, of industrialized farming, which is then affecting things like vaccine supply. So it's we're harming ourselves by exactly. harming animals. So that sounds like a depressing story, but also within that, I was so fascinated by how the chicken had been used as a metaphor for lots of things, how it's been worshipped, how it's been idolised, how it's been vilified. Throughout time and throughout different cultures, the chicken has kind of waddled along beside us and kind of been an unwitting viewer to human story. It's part of what we're trying to do. We're trying to get people to understand and appreciate the beauty, the intelligence, the emotional capacity that this animal has. And it's been stripped away throughout history, right? It started as a dinosaur and then went through all this and then became a food commodity. But the chickens, they're highly intelligent. They have the capability of loving. And to bring awareness to this, this is something that we feel so strongly about. Yeah, they yeah. fall through the cracks for medical care and they deserve veterinary medical care when they don't feel well and they're sick and everything else. That's so. really one of the themes that runs through the book. The fact that chickens are not animals. It's easier for people to do the things they do to chickens on an industrial level if they're not viewed as animals. Absolutely. Strip that capacity that they don't feel pain. Right. All of those things. Mm -hmm. And that for me is the fundamentally interesting avenue. A lot of my books, I'm writing a book at the moment about the history of the countryside. And I'm fascinated by that relationship that people have with their environment and particularly with animals. And I must confess, I'm not a vegetarian. That's a kind of moral question that I've come to terms with and I've thought about a lot. 
And for me, the guiding principle is that if we're going to utilise an animal, we have to do it with respect and compassion and humanity and all these kind of things, because it is a contract. You know, we take something and we have to give something back. And that kind of um, philosophy for me applies to lots of things, not just chickens. It applies to, you know, cereal farming. It applies to how we look after our pets. We seem to have got so far away from, from where we should be, really. Totally agree. So what was the most surprising thing that you learned as you did all the research for this book? There were so many things, so many moments. And I hope this came across in the book where I thought, what? I mean, some of the funnier bits of the book, especially about kind of ancient Greece and Rome, are about some of the crazy, for fans of chickens, it's quite difficult to talk about, you know, the idea of sacrifices or weird medical cures that involved kind of parts of chickens that you wouldn't really want to kind of be using. And the fact that ancient Greek culture really celebrated the cockerel because it was this kind of virile, aggressive animal. And that's where we get the association between cockerels and sort of masculinity, especially kind of toxic masculinity from. And that's what I found really interesting. I suppose on a kind of farming level, I found it really interesting that really chickens were a kind of non-animal in terms of the farmed landscape until really recently. And that pretty much until about the Second World War, most people didn't even bother with chicken. It was either an expensive luxury or it was something that you ate when absolutely it had exhausted all its other functions. It was basically a spent hen or it was a cockerel you didn't want anymore. And I thought that was extraordinary because now... Chicken is the most eaten meat of all the meats, and it's promoted as this kind of healthy option, this kind of thing. But that's a new thing. And eating eggs on such a quantity is such a new thing. You know, it's a real kind of shift in the sort of human diet that's only happened in the last hundred years. I found that really interesting because it shows that what humans have eaten over time has massively shifted. I think that in the commercial age of the 80s, the governments kind of slowed down the eating of eggs because they kept putting the message out that they're bad for you. They're high in cholesterol. Only eat two eggs a week. And that's how we grew up. Our parents didn't listen to it a lot. Right. Our parents did not listen to that. <laughs> Even though the message you were hearing is eggs are bad for you. We both grew up with very thrifty parents. Yeah. We ate a lot of eggs. My mother, her great grandfather came over from Italy and they had a wow. laying farm. So she grew up on a chicken laying farm. So she had eggs. That was their protein. So you go through the 80s and it's the time of convenience. And they kind of put the propaganda out there that don't eat these eggs. They're bad for you. They're bad for you. And then we come back to nature and we come back and we see this is one of the best sources of protein that you can have. It's one of the only sources of protein, in my opinion, where animals don't have to get hurt. Exactly. See, so, so even like the dairy industry, which I know the dairy industry is having a really tricky time and keen not to slag it off. But, you know, calves have to die from cows to keep on milking. Whereas the egg industry, hopefully you can carry, you know, especially if you grow your own eggs, not necessarily raise your own eggs, then that's a kind of a no-brainer, really. Mm-hmm. I always yes. say everybody should have at least four hens if you're allowed to in your area. If they want to. Yeah. It gives you a feeling of you respect the animal that gives you that egg. And like you said, you don't have to feel bad. They're not going to be hurt. It's a natural process where it comes in as battery hens. Yeah, exactly. Let's abolish that and give them the respect that they deserve. They're amazing, amazing creatures that have somehow over the years fallen through the cracks. Yeah. Talking of eggs as well, I found it really interesting to find out about how eggs were formed in a chicken and the fact that as they're coming out of the chicken, they're sort of spinning. Oh, the fact that chickens lay them wide end first seems eye-watering to think about it. I never even realised that I was thinking, you know, all these kind of processes that happen in life that everyone ignores are so fascinating. And that's kind of the core, I think, about these books that I write. Well, that brings me to my next question to you. 
what is your biggest takeaway from all this research? Only buy free-range chicken or free-range eggs. That's literally the take-home, which at the moment is really challenging because so few eggs can be classed as free-range at the moment with bird flu. I don't know what the situation is like with you guys in the US, but it's desperate here. And to get out of the mentality that to have meat every day is normal and that if we eat less but better, it's better for everybody and it's better for chicken welfare as well. That was the main takeaway from the book, really. Mm -hmm. I love it. I was also really amused by... Humans like to kind of cutify things, you know, cutify animals. And they're also kind of fluffy and gorgeous and aren't they just sweet and they never do anything wrong or all that kind of stuff. And I was thrilled by a lot of the research that said kind of how Machiavellian chickens can be and how sort of scheming they can be sometimes with their coop colleagues or the fact that, you know, there's this really defined pecking order that's really rigidly enforced, like a kind of medieval court, you know, where you have, you know, the leader with their her, his, his kind of courtiers, and then there's a woman, there's a kind of female chicken with her courtiers and stuff. And I just thought, wow, that's amazing. But that makes them more interesting and that makes them more impressive than if they were just kind of, you know, sort of cute creatures. We always say it's better than watching TV, right? <laughs> it is. I, there are two things that really fascinate me when, you know, just watching chickens. The first is if you spend any amount of time watching them, you're struck by the fact that they remember things really well. Yeah. And the other thing that always gets me, like every day I marvel over this, watching a chicken figure something out that I probably couldn't figure out as quickly. They'll spend tons of time solving a problem. It's really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I love the fact that they know things like, so we have automatic doors on our coops, you know, the ones that open and shut with the levels of light. And I love the fact that they just kind of know, they know when it's time to go to bed and they know when it's time to get up. And all those kind of processes just kind of happen automatically. And and I love the fact that they're sort of so in tune with their environment. We have one chicken in particular. It's always the first in the queue. I don't know if you always have this with your chickens, but there's always one that's kind of much punchier than the rest. <laughs> and he's always kind of like first at the queue when you're feeding them. And this one practically kicks down the door of the coop to kind of get out in the morning and it runs across to the feeding tray. And I love that. They've all got such different personalities. It's amazing. They really do. Each flock is its own society. It's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, you say, oh, that one's a queen. That's for sure. Definitely. We've had chickens as well where they seemed kind of neither massively female nor massively male. Really? I don't know if you found that as well. Oh, yeah. They, they're just kind of comfortable in their own skins, but they don't seem to kind of stick with either group. I just think it's really interesting. It's a fascinating microcosm of life. Another thing in your book that I thought was really fascinating was that there's almost a discernible pattern from, say, hen fever in the 1850s, where people were looking at chickens as pets, and it was okay to have chickens as pets. And it's taken another 150 years for us to get back to that place. And that's just small timekeepers. That's not the industrial scale. But the poultry historian Lewis Wright, if you go through his book, you find a lot of instructions or Sir John Seabright. They both wrote extensively on the best ways to take care of chickens and they mean it. You know, there's very real care there. And I feel like we're starting to come full circle to that. So back then, 150 years ago or 100 years ago, they were writing about ways to take care of chickens that a lot of people are looking at now as a novel thing. Yeah, yeah. So what do you think, you know, if you see that people are trying to move into better chicken care, what do you think the future for chickens looks like? That's such a weighty question mm -hmm. because the world is never going to be fed by backyard chicken keepers. That's never going to happen. But for me, a kind of fundamental reshape of industrial farming that takes into account 
chickens' behaviour and well-being and all that kind of stuff. That's what I hope for. And, and that, for me, comes on the back of people changing their shopping habits and eating habits. But at the same time, there is a resurgence in people interested in keeping chickens, just a few backyard chickens. And it came out of maybe lockdown, but it might have been something that's been happening in the lead up to that, which is something about our relationship with nature. And I wrote a book called Biophilia about that, about how we're fundamentally designed to have a relationship with nature and with animals and that it's a mutually beneficial thing. So I think more people will be keeping chickens as pets, which is a good thing. But I don't know how much that will inform what happens with farming. Hey, but look, there's some really brilliant bits of legislation that are hopefully going through stuff to do with phasing out caged chickens or phasing out the use of antibiotics and all that kind of stuff. It's an ongoing project, isn't it, really? Yes. Um, just have to kind of keep talking about it and, and keep being positive, really. And it's never like farming bad. You know, it's a dialogue that people need to have. A lot of it's to do with consumer habits and that farmers are only responding to need often and they're not being paid very much for farming chickens as well. So they're not getting an awful lot out of it. It's one of the things that when we talked with Jane Howard last year, she started her crusade by working along with the industry versus working against them. So she says working along with the industry, you can get much better results. Yeah, absolutely. Because essentially, you've got to get people on board. People are always much more persuaded by things by being enticed rather than punished into change. When I was doing the research for the last chapter of the book, which was about the future of chicken farm, it did slightly fill me with horror, the idea that chicken eating or eating of chicken meat does seem to be carrying on growing and not just growing a little bit, but growing kind of exponentially as other parts of the world open up to industrialised chicken farming. And I think part of the response to that will be there's some interesting developments about artificial protein. And I think when people eat chicken nuggets, I don't think they're really thinking, isn't this chicken delicious? I think they're just probably thinking, isn't this thing that's covered in... Yeah. So finding kind of meat substitutes and all that kind of stuff, I think is possibly a way to go as well. Definitely more humane, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. And really, when you think about the farmers and not making enough money anyway, over here, the price of eggs has skyrocketed along with the rising costs in fuel and animal feed. And so right now, the average is about $6 for a dozen eggs. I personally don't think that's terrible. That's 50 cents an egg for the farmer. And you know, he spent way more than that or she spent way more than that caring for those chickens. And yeah, that's the yeah. thing. The farmers themselves love their animals. They want yeah. the best for their animals, but they're being pushed by the industrial part of it to produce, produce, produce. So that kind of messes up their play with how they care for the animals. And they're doing the best they can. They started farming because probably they love the animals. Exactly. And you can bet your bottom dollar that the price that's being paid for at the retail end, it really bears no relation to what people who are farming chickens are getting. Um, right. That's why that relationship between consumer and farmer is so important. And you knowing knowing where you're buying your eggs from and that kind of thing, taking out as many of those steps in the process out as possible. So you're buying as directly as possible. You know, it all kind of feeds into healthy farming and sustainable farming. It's um, something we can all do. Yeah, absolutely help change the dynamic a little bit of it if every person said even just once a month I'm going to the farmer's market or to the local farmer and buying my eggs versus buying them in the store it would have to force a little bit of a change there and in the right direction Mm -hmm. so yeah it's scary sometimes and especially for us who really love our chickens and we see this happening to them it's tough I think you just got to kind of, you've got to be an optimistic person if you are involved with animals and you've got to believe that things will get better and push for change and and be an agent of change as well. Exactly. 
Okay, so my next question is a little off this topic, but which of the books is your favorite and why? So the answer is the least favorite book is always the one I've just finished because I'm broken by the process. It takes me such a long time. So it usually takes me about a year to do a book like Foul Play just because I've kind of written myself into a corner, really. I write books that are incredibly dense in terms of research and cover huge time periods as well. So it's not like I can just kind of write quite free form and quite free and easy. It's, it's all quite labored, a lot of the research. So by the time I finished a book, I am over it completely. (laughs) I'll never want to look at it again. But then after about sort of six months, I might go back and reread it and think, oh, that was really, yeah, that's really interesting. And I was. (laughs) You're like, who is this author? I need to check her out. Check out all of her stuff. Funny enough, I've just finished a book, which I actually really enjoyed. And actually, when I got to the end of it, I wasn't completely fed up by it. This is a new book called The Apple, A Delicious History. And what was really interesting, which was when we were talking prior to this interview, you were talking a lot about the East Coast of America. And so for me, I learned a lot about pilgrims and early settlers in America and how much they relied on apples. And I was learning all about Applejack and cider yes. and <laughs> apple, the history of apple pie and all this kind of, it was, it was fascinating. That was really, really fun. I can't wait for that one to be published. That's going to be next year. But I mean, it's quite similar in format to the chicken one in the sense that it it takes Mm -hmm. you on a historical journey. But what a glamorous fruit that is. It starts off in the Tian Shen Mountains near Kazakhstan and and kind of, you know, drifts through ancient Greece and then goes everywhere. And then we end up in Polynesia. It's such a glamorous story. So You know what? You don't find many people that don't like apples. Most people love apples. Mm -hmm. The taste is just very satisfying. The crispness, the sweetness, you can go less sweet, different types. And also their products, especially alcoholic products, are so brilliant. I think we're the only country that calls it hard cider. In the rest of the world, the alcoholic cider is just cider. Is that right? Correct. Really? Absolutely. Yeah. I did not yeah. know that. I was reading about Johnny Appleseed, which I'm terrified to write about any other culture's history in case I get it wrong. But I was fascinated by him and about that story. And about how he was essentially, he was a teetotaler himself, but he was planting trees for cider, not for apples, because the apples that were growing were not the sweet varieties. And I just think the history of America is built on kind of alcohol and how brilliant. And, you know, it's just. I have some crab apples on my little homestead farm over here. And Holly, she was always like, I'm going to try one. It was, what are they called? (laughs) Spitters. Spitters, because when you bite into them, (laughs) you want to spit it out instantly. She's been planting apple trees and I'm like, don't get crab apples because I have the crab apples here. I put in one cider tree. I put in a Harrison cider tree. The rest I put in baking apples. But yeah, yeah. yeah. But you know, England is the only country and presumably America based on the back of English colonizers that makes any difference between baking apples and cooking apples. The French think we're absolutely mad. You know, apples are just apples and you can use apples in all kinds of different, you know, but there we go. I honestly can't wait until that book comes out because I am apple crazy. But I just want to say to our listeners, longtime listeners of the podcast know that one of the things that drives me crazy is that histories of chickens are often written with no source material. And this wonderful book of yours is a properly written history with loads of beautiful, beautiful endnotes. Bless you for noticing that. That's from one academic to another. Yes. You've got to name your source. And you know what's fascinating is that every time I do a book... I read, I mean, a lot of the information I get via the internet, and luckily there's lots of research papers and things on the internet, so I'm not relying on Wikipedia. But just how much of it is just not true? You know, exactly. 
It's just not bloody true. Pardon my language. Just write something, put it out there, and it's supposed to be taken as a truth. And a lot of it isn't. Yeah. The current bane of my existence is the belief that moisture in a coop causes frostbite. Cold causes Low temperatures. That's it. That's what causes the frostbite. Presumably frostbite's caused by water within the chicken's body. Right, right. So blood supply will go away, tissue will freeze, exactly. But having moisture in a coop, say a bowl of water in a coop, does not make your chickens get frostbite. But people believe this by the thousands. Love it. That's That's hilarious. I do wonder what they think of the snow being kind of tropical jungle birds. They must just think, what the hell? (laughs) I know. Mine hate it. I have to shovel out their entire run. They won't step on it. I'm not surprised. Do you guys get really, really cold temperature? I mean, it never gets below about minus five here, but you guys must have some serious... Right around Christmas. It was dangerous. It was zero Fahrenheit. What does that equate to in Celsius? Let me look real quick. So zero Fahrenheit is minus (gasps) 17.778. No. Yes. That's cold. Does it kill chickens if it gets really cold? It can. It can. And people believe that chickens, because they're part of Ice Age, can just be out there living it up. That's the other often repeated thing, is that chickens evolved in cold temperatures to be cold hardy. No. I mean, there are certain breeds that do better in the cold than others, but no, biologically, they're jungle animals. Yeah. And yes, really high temperatures can kill them. But 32 Fahrenheit is freezing here. And anytime you get about 10 degrees below that, it's a danger zone for chickens. So you start to see frostbite. And yeah. A lot of us have moved to using radiant heat panels. Radiant heat panels. It's the same technology as the brooder plates. Yeah, yeah. It's a panel that you can put on the wall of the coop or you can mount it on feet. Super safe. They don't make the coops too hot. And people literally get in like screaming tooth and nail fights about this online. It's crazy. Do you know what? I think I need one of those in my bedroom at the moment. In the book, talking about cold chickens, I uh, I loved the little story that I found. Because uh, well, I was talking about how the chicken sailed across Polynesia and, and, right. and managed to get to places like New Zealand and Easter Island and stuff. But I loved the story of the French sailor recently who took his chicken Momo all around the world on his boat. He knitted her a little coat for when they were on the Arctic Circle so that she could kind of go out. And she looks so smart in her little knitted coat. But, oh, I want one of those. That is adorable. He connected with this chicken and the chicken connected back with him. And they're best buddies. And the capability of that is there. Yeah. You know? I love that in the book, too. Just talking about it's okay to have pets. It's okay to keep animals because they give you pleasure to have around. Absolutely. Do you know, funny enough, I was having this conversation with a friend only yesterday. She said about herself, I feel like I'm too soft to live in the countryside because I love animals so much. And I thought, isn't that an interesting thing to say? As if somehow you have to be hard hearted to cope with the death and all the things that happen. And I said, you're absolutely the right person to live in the countryside because we need people with compassion and to do things properly. Exactly. So we've talked lots about your books. Can you tell us a little bit about your column in Country Living? This is Country Living UK for our American listeners. It's an awesome magazine. It is fantastic. We love it. It's like dream job because the Country Living team are so nice to work with and have pretty much loved me to my own devices. And so every month I just kind of choose a topic 
and I talk about lots of things like, say I'm talking about chickens, I might delve into the folklore and the history, but I'll also talk about the practicalities of looking after chickens or unusual breeds for different egg colours and all that kind of stuff. And I'm just kind of riffing really on sort of life in the countryside. And it's heaven, yeah, it's a really lovely, really good job. And I'm very lucky that we have a brilliant photographer that comes twice a year to take pictures. And, and so the whole thing is a really lovely package, so yeah. I'm going to be doing that for at least another year and a bit, I think. It's a joy, isn't it? And when you work with nice people, that's the dream. Yeah. And it's such a beautiful magazine that when you sit down, we always say it's like taking a five-minute vacation. And the magazine is formatted so beautifully. And the photography is gorgeous. Yeah, and everything that you're reading and looking at, it's like you can get taken away for a few minutes and then come back to your real life. <laughs> yeah, there's always a sort of slight fantasy element to all kind of magazine and the thing I try and do in my column is kind of bring a note of sort of realism as well and, and the idea. Yes. And talk about sometimes some quite tricky issues. We've talked about theft and squabbles and animal welfare and ecology and all these kind of things. It's not just kind of bunting and tea parties and that kind of <laughs> stuff. Because that's not really what country life's about, is no. it? Really? Okay, so tell us about some upcoming projects. You told us about Apple History, which we're going to get that book as soon as it comes out, for sure. Amazing. And so <laughs> do you have any other upcoming projects that we need to know yeah. about? So I am currently writing a book for HarperCollins at the moment. This is called A History of the Countryside in 100 Objects. I'm about a third of the way through it at the moment. I'm just for coming out of the Anglo-Saxon era, which is exhausting and quite grisly, most of it. But it's fascinating and I'm learning as I'm going about. So it's, I've started right back at the sort of Mesolithic age, which is about twelve to 14,000 years ago. And it's all about how the countryside has evolved and how the countryside has developed as opposed to wilderness, basically, because the countryside is a, is a man-made landscape. So I'm talking about domesticated animals, I'm talking about fields, tools, villages, superstitions, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that's due out, I think, at the beginning of 2024. And then when that finishes, I'm writing a series of little nature books. So I've done one about like the hedgehog and the barn owl and the earthworm and stuff. So I'm going to do the book of the frog. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, really cute. And frogs are fascinating and, and sort of little understood. So that's going to be interesting. After that, who knows? I quite fancy doing a book about dogs, about the history of dogs as human companions, but also as kind of animals involved in work and hunting and all that, you know, like all the different mm -hmm. facets of dog life. So that would be very interesting. And it's quite kind of universal, isn't it? You could bring yes. in livestock guardian dogs because that's another major mm -hmm. job of yeah. the dog is to guard livestock. Absolutely. And a bit about that in the history of the world according to sheep. A lot of the sort of domestication of dogs is thought to have been as a result of the beginnings of sheep farming and the fact that no one wanted to chase these bonkers sheep around the landscape. But, you know, how that process happened is fascinating because wolves would have been untrainable. So I just found the whole thing about sort of domestication. How the hell do you get an animal to do what you want it to do? You know, and it's not a process that happens overnight. It must happen over generations and generations of choosing tame animals and all that kind of stuff. We can't wait. What a great conversation this has been. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank so you. Welcome. It's lovely to talk to two gorgeous adults. I spend most of my time just kind of staring, staring out. You're making way. us blush. <laughs> Kids and animals all day long. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So before we let you go, we have to ask you the most important question of all. This is the question we ask all of our guests. What is your favorite breed of chicken? Oh, no. You put me on the spot. You're allowed to choose more than one as well. That's yeah. okay. I have her face literally, like, in my mind. It's got to be Lavender Pekins. They're adorable. 
I don't know if it's because the personality of the particular lavender peaking I have has won me over. She's called Betty and she has a limp and she's had a limp ever since she was a chick. But she's oh. redoubtable. She is tough. She's a tough old boot now and she doesn't take any faffing in the in the coop. So I love that about her. So yes, Betty, my lavender peaking, she's my idol. Yeah. I don't know how she keeps clean. She always looks immaculate, like a kind of glamorous older lady. She just looks so polished. I don't know how she does it. They're this big, huge, wide ball of fluff. And then they're yeah. so low to the ground that you're like, how in the heck? Like they, you said, they, kind of they glide, stay clean. They glide. <laughs> That's so right. They do glide. Sally, we just want to say this has been a brilliant conversation with you this morning. We've loved it. We love your book. Everyone listening, read this book, Foul Play. Yes. It's a history of the chicken from dinosaur to dinner plate. It's amazing to sit down and delve into this book and really take it in and understand the history of the chicken this way. You cannot look at chickens the same way once you have all of these things in your brain. You can't. But thank you so much for talking with us. It's been awesome. Oh, look, girls, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. And I really appreciate all the cool questions and brilliant conversation. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. We just want to thank Sally one more time for spending a really delightful hour with us. The chicken history in this book, you do not want to miss it. Go get yourself a copy. Links in our show notes. Yeah, it's awesome. Okay, so let's move on to cracking the eggs. Cracking those eggs. This week's cracking the eggs, we're doing savory buckwheat crepes. Crepes are good no matter what time of the day. Seriously, you can fill these with eggs for breakfast. You can put salad in them for lunch. Dinner, fill them with something yummy, veg and whatever. So let's start with the ingredients. Two eggs, one and a half cups of milk, half a teaspoon of baking soda, half a teaspoon of salt or sea salt, whatever you want to use. Yeah. Two tablespoons of sugar, three tablespoons of butter, and the all-important ingredient, one cup of buckwheat flour. It's a lot easier to get buckwheat flour now than it used to be. Yeah. And if you need to do gluten and dairy-free, the buckwheat flour is naturally gluten-free. And instead of milk, use oat milk or a plant milk. Exactly. So this is a really easy recipe because it's one bowl. I love one bowl recipes. Love one bowl. So you're going to grab your mixing bowl. You're going to add your eggs, your milk, baking soda, optional salt, sugar, and melted butter. And you're going to whisk it just to blend. Right. Then you're going to add the buckwheat flour and you're going to whisk it until it's smooth. Here's an important thing. Your batter's going to be thin. Yeah. Pop it in the refrigerator for about half an hour and let it settle. Let it do what it does. Batter seems to work better when it's a little cold. Yeah. Especially when it's thin batter. I agree. So when you're ready to cook, you're going to put a large skillet or a crepe pan over medium heat. And as soon as it's warm, you're going to grease it with butter or you can spray it with cooking spray. Mm -hmm. And then you're simply going to do the way you usually do crepes. A couple tablespoons of batter, tilt it around so it coats the bottom. It's like a trick. It's kind of like you get used to how to turn it. You have one of the spreaders. I just pour it in because I have a big crepe pan. So just doing the crepe pan. I, you have to get used to the spreading. It's a move of the wrist. It's, no matter which way you're doing it, it's yeah, a certain move of the wrist. You have to get used to it. And then once you have it, even if you have it, if you haven't done it for a while, your first few crepes yeah. aren't going to turn out. Got to get back into don't it. Don't fret. It'll get easier. Those are the chef's Once. snack, right? Yeah. So it only takes like a minute to cook, if even that. You're going to see it start to get golden. You're going to pull it up, flip it over another 30 seconds. That's it. That's it. You can start stacking them with a towel to keep them warm. And we like this recipe because you can fill them with whatever you want. Hey, if you want to fill them with scrambled eggs and bacon or whatever. Yeah, so we did these savory. You can easily make these dessert crepes. Just up the sugar a little bit and you could do like sauteed apples in there. That's what I was thinking. You could even bake some apples and then just fill them with that. A little bit of whipped cream or creme fraiche. Strawberries, fresh strawberries in the summer or the spring. 
you can make this your own. It's a perfect base recipe. I really, really like them savory. I like them with like spinach and tomato and maybe some smashed That's white like beans That's like a good lunch one. So good. It really is equally good with more sugar and apples. I love it that way too. Well, you're coming over to the DiCarlo side with sugar. Well, if I put four <laughs> tablespoons, how many do you put in? 100. <laughs> I'm just joking. So make some crepes. Send us some pictures. We want to see what you do with this. Absolutely. Let us know how you like it. Okay, so let's move on to retail therapy. Retail therapy. Yeah. This week's retail therapy, vintage chicken napkin rings and or napkin holders. We love a chicken set table. We've got some chicken napkin rings too. We have some of those. And when we get together, we like to make it special. If we're working, it's real quick. But if we're getting together for lunch or something, we try to set the table. Make yeah, it look, make it pretty. Make it pretty. So we want to talk about what kind of options you got out there for your chicken napkin rings or napkin holders. There's a large variety and they come in all different styles. If you're trying to be a little bit more upmarket, there are some vintage Martha Stewart pewter rooster napkin rings that are quite nice. I have a lot of stuff. Nuh-uh. <laughs> And the ones that I have found have either been at consignment stores or thrift stores. Now, you can always go to Etsy and eBay and look for them if you need them in a pinch quickly. But I have found all of mine in the wild. And I never pass up a chicken napkin holder, ever. Oh, never, never. I do have some very small, very fancy card holders that are meant for putting like on a buffet. Yeah. I think they're silver plated roosters. Nice. And I got them with an eBay gift card that you gave me a while ago. But where I was going with that was the rest of the ones that I have are thrift store finds. Yeah. I mean, you can really find them out there. There's this little consignment store in my area called the Shabby Button. I can't remember if I've taken you, you there. You have not. Yeah, we have to go there. The they have wrong. like a whole farmhouse room. And yeah. I've gotten a lot of my chicken napkin holders there. I think I got four or five of them for nine bucks. Wow. That was a really good deal. And believe it or not, I got my chick napkin holders, the wicker ones, from Joanne Fabrics. Oh, that's cool. At the spring and Easter time. If you ever want to do chick stuff, Easter is the time to look for it because you can go to Joanne's or different places like that for Easter. Chicks are a big thing. A lot of the chicken napkin rings are going to be ceramic. Yeah. And one of our absolute favorite ceramic companies... Fitz and Floyd. Oh, yeah. Has these really elaborate hen and chick napkin holders. Ooh, I They are the cutest, but they're also pricey. And I've never seen them in the wild, obviously, only on Etsy. Some of the stuff you're waiting for somebody else to find in the wild somewhere and then put on Etsy or eBay. Right. The other thing that we haven't talked about yet, which you can find a lot of, are napkin holders. When you set your table for like a little luncheon or whatever... Napkin holders is the thing where you put the napkins in between both sides. Right. There are some really pretty napkin holders. There are some cute ones. I've seen plain black metal rooster silhouette. Yeah. I just pulled one up on Mercari. You see that one? Oh, yeah. That's like roosters. 70. Look at this one. Oh, that's really cute. Yeah. Is I there mean, a maker? No, it doesn't have a... A lot of them double as letter holders. For your desk. Yeah, you can put them on your desk. Yeah. And you can get like made in Japan, like the older vintage napkin holders from mid-century that you can put on your table. Or these you can use every day also just to hold some napkins. But to dress up your table, these little accents make it so pretty and special and it's easy. Yeah, they do tend to be more affordable. Yeah. They definitely show up in the thrift shop. So keep your eyes open there. Look at this one. I love that, but I recognize that's part of a set. Yeah. 
It's Japanese ceramic. Uh-huh. Country Road, 1979. Country Road. Do you have the salt and pepper shakers that go with that? No, but I would love them. I've seen Country Roads. So this one's a little bit more pricey. It's Plymouth Rock or Bard Rock Hen and Rooster Design. And it's Country Road, 1979, made in Japan. And it's $30. That's a little pricey. It's a little pricey, but if you use it every day. Now, I found one that is a figural. So it's a cockerel. Okay. And there's a place in his back you can put napkins or mail. And he is oh, yeah. 1970s bright yellow. Yeah. The 70s were like the time for the napkin holder. Yeah. Now, napkin holders kind of went out of style yes, a little bit in the recent day. Mm-hmm. But you know what? Sometimes bringing a little of the vintage back, it makes your table more homey to sit down as a family, have dinner. Sometimes it's just nice. The napkins are on the table. They're decorative in a right. decorative piece. And everybody can grab the napkins while you're sitting there eating. Right. It's convenience, but you can put a little of yourself in it with the chickens. I do quite like the idea of using it on your desk, too. Yeah, letter holder. Chicken on the desk. This is a contemporary one that you can find on Amazon. It's a napkin or mail holder that's chicken wire. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of stuff. These things, even if you had a plain plate, they dress it up. You can definitely put fancier napkins in there. Yep. Actually, you can put cloth napkins in there if you want to. You could even do like the brown burlap. Uh-huh. And the napkin holders make it so special. Well, that's where you can make sort of a vignette. Your napkin holder with some pretty napkins in it, either paper or cloth. You can put your salt and pepper shakers there, a little vase of flowers. You can put all that on a tray. There are a million ways you can arrange them on your table. And it's a practical chicken collectible. It is. You can use it to make any ordinary situation feel a little more special just simply by pulling them out. In the middle of the winter, sometimes you want to do something different, pull them out and use them. Yeah, why not? Okay, so if you have any really cool ones, share them with us. Let us know. We'd love to see them. Should we tell everybody what we're going to be talking about next week? Yes, indeed. Next week, we're doing an interesting European breed, the Sultaler. Our main topic, Dr. Rebecca is joining us again, and we are talking about medical care for chicks. This is a really important one. Everyone needs to listen. Cracking the eggs. We are making breakfast empanadas with sausage, potato, and egg. Oh my God, I can't wait. That sounds good. Yeah. Retail therapy, we're reviewing some coop neutralizers. They really work well all year, but especially in the winter Mm -hmm. too. Okay, so what should we tell everybody to do until next week? Hug your chickens. Every day and kiss them too. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. If you'd like to see more of us, please follow us on Instagram at Coffee with the Chicken Ladies. If you'd like to help us grow the podcast, please leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to become a patron of the show, please visit our Patreon page, patreon.com slash coffee with the chicken ladies. Thanks for listening. Ha, 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 ha.